This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Sarah Crewe, or What Happened at Miss Minchin's, by Frances Hodgson Burnett, Part 5. Sarah could not even imagine a being charming enough to fill her grand ideal of her mysterious benefactor. If she tried to make in her mind a picture of him or her, it ended by being something glittering and strange, not at all like a real person, but bearing resemblance to a sort of eastern magician with long robes and a wand. And when she fell asleep beneath the soft white blanket, she dreamed all night of this magnificent personage, and talked to him in Hindustani, and made salams to him. Upon one thing she was determined. She would not speak to any one of her good fortune. It should be her own secret. In fact, she was rather inclined to think that if Miss Minchin knew, she would take her treasures from her, or in some way spoil her pleasure. So when she went down the next morning, she shut her door very tight, and did her best to look as if nothing unusual had occurred. And yet this was rather hard, because she could not help remembering, every now and then, with a sort of a start, and her heart would beat quickly every time she repeated to herself, I have a friend. It was a friend who evidently meant to continue to be kind, for when she went to her garret the next night, and she opened the door, it must be confessed, with a rather excited feeling, she found that the same hands had been again at work, and had done even more than before. The fire and the supper were again there, and beside them a number of other things which so altered the look of the garret that Sarah quite lost her breath. A piece of bright, strange, heavy cloth covered the battered mantle, and on it some ornaments had been placed. All the bare, ugly things which could be covered with draperies had been concealed and made to look quite pretty. Some odd materials in rich colors had been fastened against the walls with sharp, fine tacks, so sharp that they could be pressed into the wood without hammering. Some brilliant fans were pinned up, and there were several large cushions. A long old wooden box was covered with a rug, and some cushions lay on it, so that it wore quite the air of a sofa. Sarah simply sat down and looked, and looked again. It is exactly like something fairy come true, she said. There isn't the least difference. I feel as if I might wish for anything diamonds and bags of gold, and they would appear. That couldn't be any stranger than this. Is this my garret? Am I the same cold, ragged, damp Sarah? And to think how I used to pretend and pretend and wish there were fairies. The one thing I always wanted was to see a fairy story come true. I am living in a fairy story. I feel as if I might be a fairy myself, 
and be able to turn things into anything else. It was like a fairy story, and, what was best of all, it continued. Almost every day something new was done to the garret. Some new comfort or ornament appeared in it when Sarah opened her door at night, until actually, in a short time, it was a bright little room, full of all sorts of odd and luxurious things. And the magician had taken care that the child should not be hungry, and that she should have as many books as she could read. When she left the room in the morning, the remains of her supper were on the table, and when she returned in the evening, the magician had removed them, and left another nice little meal. Downstairs, Miss Minchin was as cruel and insulting as ever. Miss Amelia was as peevish, and the servants were as vulgar. Sarah was sent on errands, and scolded, and driven hither and thither. But somehow it seemed as if she could bear it all. The delightful sense of romance and mystery lifted her above the cook's temper and malice. The comfort she enjoyed and could always look forward to was making her stronger. If she came home from her errands wet and tired, she knew she would soon be warm after she had climbed the stairs. In a few weeks she began to look less thin. A little color came into her cheeks, and her eyes did not seem much too big for her face. It was just when this was beginning to be so apparent that Miss Minchin sometimes stared at her questioningly that another wonderful thing happened. A man came to the door and left several parcels. All were addressed, in large letters, to the little girl in the attic. Sarah herself was sent to open the door, and she took them in. She laid the two largest parcels on the hall table and was looking at the address when Miss Minchin came down the stairs. "'Take the things upstairs to the young lady to whom they belong,' she said. "'Don't stare there staring at them.' "'They belong to me,' answered Sarah quietly. "'To you?' exclaimed Miss Minchin. "'What do you mean?' "'I don't know where they came from,' said Sarah. "'But they're addressed to me.' Miss Minchin came to her side and looked at them with an excited expression. "'What is in them?' she demanded. "'I don't know,' said Sarah. "'Open them,' she demanded, still more excitedly. Sarah did as she was told. They contained pretty and comfortable clothing, clothing of different kinds, shoes and stockings and gloves, a warm coat, and even an umbrella. On the pocket of the coat was pinned a paper on which was written, To be worn every day will be replaced by others when necessary. Miss Minchin was quite agitated. This was an incident which suggested strange things to her sordid mind. Could it be that she made a mistake after all, and that the child so neglected and so unkindly treated by her had some powerful friend in the background? It would not be very pleasant if there should be such a friend, and he or she should learn all the truth about the thin, shabby clothes, the scant food, the hard work. She felt queer, indeed, 
and uncertain, and she gave a side glance at Sarah. "'Well,' she said, in a voice such as she had never used since the day the child lost her father, "'well, someone is very kind to you. "'As you have the things and are to have new ones when they are worn out, "'you may as well go and put them on and look respectable, "'and after you are dressed, you may come downstairs and learn your lessons in the schoolroom. So it happened that, about a half an hour afterward, Sarah struck the entire schoolroom of pupils dumb with amazement by making her appearance in a costume such as she had never worn since the change of fortune whereby she ceased to be a show pupil and a parlor boarder. She scarcely seemed to be the same Sarah. She was neatly dressed in a pretty gown of warm browns and reds, and even her stockings and slippers were nice and dainty. "'Perhaps someone has left her a fortune,' one of the girls whispered. "'I always thought something would happen to her. She is so queer.' That night, when Sarah went to her room, she carried out a plan she had been devising for some time. She wrote a note to her unknown friend. It ran as follows. I hope you will not think it is not polite that I should write this note to you when you wish to keep yourself a secret, but I do not mean to be impolite, or to try to find out at all. Only I want to thank you for being so kind to me, so beautiful kind, and making everything like a fairy story. I am so grateful to you, and I am so happy. I used to be so lonely and cold and hungry, and now, oh, just think of what you have done for me. Please let me say just these words. It seems as if I ought to say them. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The Little Girl in the Attic The next morning she left this on the little table, and it was taken away with the other things. So she felt sure the magician had received it, and she was happier for the thought. A few nights later a very odd thing happened. She found something in the room which she certainly would never have expected. When she came in, as usual, she saw something small and dark in her chair, an odd, tiny figure which turned toward her a little weird-looking, wistful face. "'Why, it's the monkey!' she cried. It's the Indian gentleman's monkey. Where can he have come from? It was the monkey, sitting up and looking so like a mite of a child that it really was quite pathetic, and very soon Sarah found out how he happened to be in her room. The skylight was open, and it was easy to guess that he had crept out of his master's garret window, which was only a few feet away and perfectly easy to get in and out of even for a climber less agile than the monkey. He had probably climbed to the garret on a tour of investigation, and getting out upon the roof and being attracted by the light in Sarah's attic had crept in. At all events this seemed quite reasonable, and there he was. And when Sarah went to him, he actually put out his queer, elfish little hands, caught her dress, and jumped into her arms. "'Oh, you queer, poor, ugly, foreign little thing,' said Sarah, caressing him. "'I can't help liking you. "'You look like a sort of baby. 
but I am so glad you are not, because your mother could not be proud of you, and nobody would dare to say you were like any of your relations. But I do like you. You have such a forlorn little look in your face. Perhaps you are sorry you are so ugly, and it's always on your mind. I wonder if you have a mind. The monkey sat and looked at her while she talked, and seemed much interested in her remarks, if one could judge by his eyes and his forehead, and the way he moved his head up and down, and held it sideways, and scratched it with his little hand. He examined Sarah quite seriously, and anxiously, too. He felt the stuff of her dress, touched her hands, climbed up and examined her ears, and then sat on her shoulder, holding a lock of her hair, looking mournful, but not at all agitated. Upon the whole, he seemed pleased with Sarah. "'But I must take you back,' she said to him, "'though I am sorry to have to do it. "'Oh, the company you would be to a person!' She lifted him from her shoulder, set him on her knee, and gave him a bit of cake. He sat and nibbled it, and then put his head on one side, looked at her, wrinkled his forehead, and then nibbled again, in the most companionable manner. "'But you must go home,' said Sarah at last, and she took him in her arms to carry him downstairs. Evidently he did not want to leave the room, for as they reached the door he clung to her neck and gave a little scream of anger. "'You mustn't be an ungrateful monkey,' said Sarah. "'You ought to be fondest of your own family. I'm sure the Lascar is good to you.' Nobody saw her on her way out, and very soon she was standing on the Indian gentleman's front steps, and the Lascar had opened the door for her. "'I found your monkey in my room,' she said in Hindustani. "'I think he got in through the window.' The man began a rapid outpouring of thanks, but just as he was in the midst of them, a fretful, hollow voice was heard through the open door of the nearest room. The instant he heard it, the Lascar disappeared, and left Sarah still holding the monkey. It was not many moments, however, before he came back bringing a message. His master had told him to bring Missy into the library. The sahib was very ill, but he wished to see Missy. Sarah thought this odd, but she remembered reading stories of Indian gentlemen who, having no constitutions, were extremely cross and full of whims, and who must have their own way so she followed the Lascar. When she entered the room, the Indian gentleman was lying on an easy chair, propped up with pillows. He looked frightfully ill. His yellow face was thin, and his eyes were hollow. He gave Sarah a rather curious look. It was as if she wakened in him some anxious interest. "'You live next door?' he said. "'Yes,' answered Sarah. I live at Miss Minchin's. She keeps a boarding school? Yes, said Sarah. And you are one of her pupils? Sarah hesitated a moment. I don't know exactly what I am, she replied. Why not? asked the Indian gentleman. The monkey gave a tiny squeak, and Sarah stroked him. At first, she said, I was a pupil and a parlor boarder. But now, what do you mean by at first, asked the Indian gentleman. 
when I was first taken there by my papa. Well, what has happened since? said the invalid, staring at her and knitting his brows with a puzzled expression. My papa died, said Sarah. He lost all his money, and there was none left for me, and there was no one to take care of me or pay Miss Minchin, so— So you were sent up into the garret and neglected and made into a half-starved little drudge? put in the Indian gentleman. That is about it, isn't it? The color deepened on Sarah's cheeks. There was no one to take care of me, and no money, she said. I belong to nobody. What did your father mean by losing his money? said the gentleman fretfully. The red in Sarah's cheeks grew deeper, and she fixed her odd eyes on the yellow face. He did not lose it himself, she said. He had a friend he was fond of, and it was his friend who took his money. I don't know how. I don't understand. He trusted his friend too much. She saw the invalid start, the strangest start, as if he had been suddenly frightened. Then he spoke nervously and excitedly. That's an old story, he said. It happens every day, but sometimes those who are blamed, those who do the wrong, don't intend it and are not so bad. It may happen through a mistake, a miscalculation. They may not be so bad. No, said Sarah, but the suffering is just as bad for the others. It killed my papa. The Indian gentleman pushed aside some of the gorgeous wraps that covered him. Come a little nearer and let me look at you, he said. His voice sounded very strange. It had a more nervous and excited tone than before. Sarah had an odd fancy that he was half afraid to look at her. She came and stood nearer, the monkey clinging to her and watching his master anxiously over his shoulder. The Indian gentleman's hollow, restless eyes fixed themselves on her. Yes, he said at last. Yes, I can see it. Tell me your father's name. His name was Ralph Crewe, said Sarah. Captain Crewe? Perhaps, a sudden thought flashing upon her, perhaps you may have heard of him. He died in India. The Indian gentleman sank back upon his pillows. He looked very weak and seemed out of breath. Yes, he said, I knew him. I was his friend. I meant no harm. If he had only lived, he would have known. It turned out well, after all. He was a fine young fellow. I was fond of him. I will make it right. Call, call the man. Sarah thought he was going to die, but there was no need to call the Lasker. He must have been waiting at the door. He was in the room and by his master's side in an instant. He seemed to know what to do. He lifted the drooping head and gave the invalid something in a small glass. The Indian gentleman lay, panting for a few minutes, and then spoke in an exhausted but eager voice, addressing the Lasker in Hindustani. "'Go for Carmichael,' he said. "'Tell him to come here at once. Tell him I have found the child.' 
When Mr. Carmichael arrived, which occurred in a very few minutes, for it turned out that he was none other than the father of the large family across the street, Sarah went home and was allowed to take the monkey with her. She certainly did not sleep very much that night, though the monkey behaved beautifully and did not disturb her in the least. It was not the monkey that kept her awake. It was her thoughts and her wonders as to what the Indian gentleman had meant when he said, "'Tell him I have found the child.' "'What child?' Sarah kept asking herself. "'I was the only child there. "'But how had he found me? "'And why did he want to find me? "'And what is he going to do now that I am found? "'Is it something about my papa? "'Do I belong to somebody?' Is he one of my relations? Is something going to happen? End of part five.